Welcome to the Impossible Archive. I'm Bill Black. My co-host is Eddie Guimont, and we're historians who like to grapple with the weird. Eddie is an assistant professor at Bristol Community College. I'm a high school teacher in Houston and an editor at Contingent Magazine. We have our very first guest on the show. Her name is Kate Dorsch. That's D-O-R-S-C-H. And she's a historian of science and a postdoctoral lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. She wrote a dissertation titled Reliable Witnesses Crackpot Science, UFO Investigations in Cold War America 1947 to 1977. She is the first trained historian since really the the 1970s to look at Project Blue Book and the other related Air Force programs, which she puts within a larger historical context of the Cold War military, industrial, academic complex. Before we start, I'll need to explain a little bit of the chronology in some just basic key terms, because we didn't always stop and lay that sort of thing out in our chat with Kate. First, you'll hear us throw around the year 1947. That year, really that summer, marked the first modern wave of UFO sightings starting with the famous sighting by Kenneth Arnold in Washington State. That's the sighting where we get the term flying saucer. The Air Force created three successive programs to investigate UFOs. First, there was Project Sign from 1948 to 1949, then Project Grudge from 1949 to 1951, and then the longest running of the three is Project Blue Book from 1952 to 1969. That's, you know, uh, Project Blue Book is the most famous one, so sometimes you'll hear us refer to the Blue Book files when we really mean all three programs. Kate, in her dissertation, gives us three case studies of uh, scientists who were working on the UFO question during this time period, and each of them comes up in our conversation. You'll hear uh, Donald Menzel. Um, He was the director of the Harvard Observatory, and he was the most prominent UFO debunker of the time. Then there's J. Allen Hynek, who was an astrophysicist in the 1950s. He was based out of Ohio State. Later, he was at Northwestern um, University, and he worked as a scientific consultant for Project Sign, Project Grudge, Um, and Project Blue Book. In 1973, he founded the Center for UFO Studies. Finally, James McDonald was a a meteorologist at the University of Arizona, and he became a major defender of UFOs as a legitimate phenomenon. He was also a major critic of Project Blue Book and the Condon Committee. And that's the last thing I should give you a a primer on, is the Condon Committee that was uh, funded by the Air Force. It was a group of scientists led by physicist Edward Condon at the University of Arizona. And their job was to conduct an independent study of the UFO question. And it was created partly in response to a big UFO flap in Michigan in 1966. That's actually the... UFO flap that prompts 
um, J. Allen Hynek's infamous press conference blaming the sightings on swamp gas, and then uh, angry constituents brought the matter to the attention of then-House Minority Leader Gerald Ford. Anyway, the Condon Committee's report was published in 1969. It basically said the UFO question did not merit any further scientific research, and as a result, the Air Force shut down Project Blue Book. As I mentioned in the intro to our last episode, Kate's dissertation is online for free. You can find the link in our show notes, as well as a piece that she wrote in Foreign Policy called UFOs Were Born Among America's Cold War Fears. Um, we're on Twitter at Arc Impossible. That's A-R-C Impossible. And our music is by Venus Flytrash. Um... Most of the response I've gotten from the general public has been supportive and warm. And, you know, the UFO community has seemed to have largely embraced it and been like, we, you know, this is really good and really interesting. And we appreciate, you know, the way that you treated this material and, and that, and I don't consider myself to be like part of the true believer crowd. And I don't, I hope that that is not the impression the dissertation gave, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it's sort of validating for me because I do respect that community. Um, they're, they're really supportive, engaged, thoughtful, generous community of people. Um, and so I, I was always in the back of my mind cognizant of the fact that I am not out to make these people look like crackpots. That's, I don't think they are. And that's definitely not the way I want to show them, describe them. Um, so it's good to know that perhaps I succeeded in some way. Well, I'll say that I do a lot of research, like my current uh, big research project is on the history of flat earthers, although that also, it's been, it's been, there's a couple of archives I was meaning to get to, which I have not been able to, one of which was uh, the university in Cape Town that just burned down, so that's also been a major setback, but uh, I also do stuff with uh, cryptozoology, and uh, I mean, yeah, and that's, I like you, I would not call myself a believer in crypto cryptids, I get well, I mean, I guess depending your definition of a cryptid, uh, but uh, I mean, in general, I would not call myself a believer, but I don't, certainly don't try and, you know, label them as, you know, cranks, and I would say I have a lot of true believer cryptozoologists who get in touch with me and uh, I talk with fairly regularly, I would say I have a good rapport with. And yeah, it is where I think, and that's not to make them sound desperate, but I feel like they, having been put into such a box of, you know, like cranks and crackpots and having someone, especially someone with, you know, the PhD after their name, talk to them seriously and, you know, have, conversations with them and show an interest in their work even if you're not a believer i think that goes a long way to drawing them out uh, and you know ha creating a good conversation with them that others who are just like these are all you know <laughs> drunk hillbillies you know seeing swamp gas or whatever you know it's then you're not going to have that kind of response to them that's what i've been telling journalists sort of all along is that i have found the community to be like I said, helpful, supportive, receptive. Um, back in the beginning of this project, I went to the subreddits more than once to find <laughs> documents that, like I knew existed, but weren't in the archives. And like without mm -hmm. fail, someone's like, oh, of course I have that in my attic. Let me go scan it for you, right? <laughs> and, and every, and I know that there are like sub communities 
for example, those that have been dogpiling the journalists recently with like really aggressive you know, disparaging yes. and not, it's not cool. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's disappointing and everything else. Um, but they're only a small subset. And, and so what I've been telling journalists is overwhelmingly this community can be extremely helpful and, and available to you. And, and all you have to do is like treat them in good faith. Like mm-hmm. they're people who had experiences that they can't explain. And so many of us have had, you know, have had something similar happen, even if we haven't actually seen a UFO. So if the UFO people don't want to talk to you, it, it's not really like that says more about you than it does about, yeah. them, right? Like they know, they know what my stance is. They know what my project is. They know that I'm not out to, to convince anyone of anything, right? That UFOs are aliens or that they're not, right? That's not my job. And I've made that explicit throughout. Like I'm not here to pass judgment, this is a, like a sort of almost like judgment-free project for me, um, <laughs> mostly because I'm not interested in the judgment questions. I think once you, you not only communicate that, but then you sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Live that value. Um, it, goes, it goes a long way. This seems so obvious to say, it goes a long <laughs> way to, com- to create trust with these communities that are, frequently distrustful of people like us. And in some cases for good reason, because they've been Mm -hmm. systematically disparaged um, and treated as crazy, um, crackpots, cranks, um, people of low moral character uh, for (laughs) for decades. Is there an example of uh, interactions with people in the UFO community helping you in your research or, or, um, you know, pointing you to an archive or pointing you to whatever, or do those interactions really come after your research? These days, those interactions really come after. Um, Early on, there were various pamphlets from, and it is my next project to sort of spin off in that direction, um, will rely a lot more on that community. Um, I, my original plan for the book manuscript was to add a chapter or two about the private UFO investigative organizations from this sort of the same time period that are peopled with former military and professional scientists, but are not affiliated with the Air Force, right? So MUFON in its early days, NICAP and Kehoe, right? All of these things. Um, and those archives, there isn't really a central location. Um, Northwestern has been trying to get them for a while, but the UFO people are really distrustful of Northwestern as an institution. So what I've been doing a lot is just contacting, like finding out who has these papers, like using people in the community um, to figure out who has what, and then convincing them to not throw them away. Right. Or (laughs) like my next mission, like after maybe later in this year is to like work with, I would love to work with Northwestern to create trust with this community because you know, the biggest fear is that all of this stuff is in some, somebody's attic and, you know, the grandkids are going to come through when he's gone and be like, what is all like, we don't, what? You right. Know? And it's going to end up in the garbage, <laughs> uh, which is always the historian's greatest fear. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize Northwestern was still involved. Yeah. They have Heineck's, some of he- JL and Heineck's stuff. Um, less than I was hoping for. I'll be honest when I went um, but some good correspondence, some interesting stuff, especially when it came to um, Heineck's efforts to open the Center for UFO Studies in the 70s. Um, but so in the early days, I was sort of like, I know the, these pamphlets and these documents and looking for some of this NICAP stuff or whatever. Does anybody 
have anything like this. And some people were like, yeah, or they put me in contact with people who did um, because they're a very well-connected community. Um, and I am hopeful that when, you know, next summer, perhaps when I can actually take, you know, a month or so to do a sort of extended national research trip to all of these <laughs> different tiny towns that have this stuff. Um, a lot of it is in, is literally in people's garages. Like there is not a sort of archive. Um, and it'll be just a lot of like getting Airbnbs and stopping at people's houses <laughs> to take pictures. And I look forward to that, to be totally honest. Um, but that's, you know, like, that's a thing I wouldn't be able to do if I, if I went out of my way to make, to like destroy my relationships with these people. Right? Yep. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. They've been helpful. I, I appreciate it. Well, I wanted to dive into things. Um, I think, probably one of your key themes, one of the key points you want to get across. But actually, there's a quote here from page 17, where you say um, that when they're framed in their appropriate context, UFO investigations lose their strange and exceptional status and rather appear as routine and practical programs undertaken by the national security arm of the expertise state. So in part, you're trying to kind of de-weird this um, and... I think you also use that as a way to resist this popular narrative that the Air Force's UFO investigations were a cover-up, that that, <laughs> that kind of narrative falls away when you look at, well, you know, this kind of larger apparatus as part of. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so I went into this project thinking that it was going to be weird and goofy and pseudoscientific and... Um, sort of sci-fi, I'm a big <laughs> nerd, right? So I, I went into this project thinking, be, because I'm interested in these sort of broader, in pseudosciences broadly, um, and the sorts of questions they let us ask about trust and credibility and, and how we make scientific knowledge. And, and I have a sort of philosophical streak in me, like what counts as evidence and the sort of big epistemological questions, the big ontological questions. <laughs> Um, but what I found as the months and then the years in these archives rolled on is that the UFO is not actually like Bigfoot. It's not actually <laughs> like, um, lucid dreaming or well, that's maybe that's a bad example. People actually lucid dream, um, or, um, spoon bending and ESP, right? Like it's, it's not actually like these things, um, it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about the way the world changes after World War II. World War II, right, the Air Force is making this argument that they, that air power won the war, and specifically American air power won the war, and we will point not the least to the atomic bombs, like as the sort of definitive technology um, of the end of the war. And the Air Force comes out of World War II making the argument that all future wars will be aerial. Um, land wars are over. Why would you ever put troops on the ground when you have bombers? <laughs> like then it's just, you know, shooting fish in, in the proverbial barrel. So, and that's, you know, we've seen a sort of ex like a rapid acceleration in techno-scientific progress during, during World War II. Um, and the American public sort of knows it. And so shortly thereafter, 
you have an experienced pilot, someone who you would consider to be a trustworthy and credible witness for aerial phenomena saying, I saw these things that looked metallic, like aircraft. They appeared to be intelligently controlled. They were fast, but not inhumanly fast. They were faster than he was accustomed to seeing, but not unbelievably fast. Um, executing these really impressive maneuvers. Of course, the first place we're going to go is this is some kind of like aeronautical technology, right? And, and that's the first place the Air Force goes. And I think rightly so, given how much they're pushing this sort of messaging about progress, technology in this area, about how all future wars are going to be airborne. It's the Pacific Northwest. It's awfully close to Russia, right? So all of these things sort of combine into this moment that you know nobody in that first year or two is saying that these are aliens um but until today i mean i've got a copy of this director of national intelligence's report right here on my desk from you know two weeks ago now the concern is is that they are terrestrial and they represent some technology we don't know and when you when you think about it from this perspective that unidentified flying objects are national security concerns, missiles, planes, drones, surveillance balloons, whatever they might be, then it makes sense that you as a nation engaged in a worldwide cold war will do what you can to figure out what these things are. Um, and so as you explore in greater and greater depth, these UFO projects, I did air quotes, the podcast, <laughs> like I keep saying, is like a great visual medium. As you get- You can deeper, hear the air quotes though. You can. Um, <laughs> as you get into these UFO projects, what you see is the Air Force taking methods that it's using in other kinds of programs as well to you know, try to track, identify, uncover, study, perhaps, riff from um, these things that people are apparently seeing in the sky. And it looks really, they talk about it in really routine ways. They do these monthly reports in really routine ways. Um, they, they, you know, they understand this as a national security issue. And then I, I think often people in the UFO community would, would criticize that as, well, if you're seeing, seeing it through the national security lens, then basically once they decide that it isn't a national security threat, then the question of what are they is less interesting. It's like, well, they're not the Soviets. They're not Navy. Um, <laughs> Thank God, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love the turf war. I love the Air Force Navy turf war. I can't get enough of it. I, I know it's been interesting because the recent UFO news, I've, I've been sort of catching how Navy-centric a lot of this stuff is. Mm -hmm. what, what, do, what do you make of that? Um, so there has been, especially... There's a historical piece of this. After World War II, the Air Force is still part of the Army and the Navy is an independent branch. And the Navy wants to be, is eager to absorb, I should say, the resources that were going into the Army Air Force, the money, the R&D budget, the personnel, the contracts with scientists. Um, but the US Army Air Force is saying, hey, we won this war. We should be our own branch of the service. And we won the war. We're going to win future wars. And so we want all of this R&D and resources and personnel and money from the Department of Defense and, and all of this. Um, 
And it's only natural that we get the air, the UFO project because UFOs are in the sky and like the Navy is <laughs> dealing with water and who cares about that, right? So there, there's a sort of battle that is always taking place in the UFO front, but I think elsewhere in the history of the military industrial complex and the military academic industrial complex, um, these turf wars between the Navy and the Air Force. It makes me chuckle that today's thing, like the, the group implicated in this sort of recent narrative is the Navy. Um, and it's also interesting to me or amusing that they are committing some of the same missteps that the Air Force did in the 1960s, um, that they didn't, they didn't learn, they don't appear to have learned from that example, from that story, um, right down to, we're gonna tell you everything we know and it's not gonna be a lot, but that will satisfy you, right? <laughs> you know, they, they keep trying to be open and I appreciate that, that they are trying to be as transparent as they can be. Um, but I, I think it sounds, let me think about my words. It reads to me, their statements read to me as being very similar to those the Air Force is making in the late 50s and early 60s, which is if we just tell people enough, if we prove to them that we're investigating these in good faith, that will damp, tamp down the controversy, that will like satisfy people. And the answer is it's never going to be enough. You will never, ever, ever be able to give that like hardcore true believer subset of that community enough. Mm -hmm. As long as there's one unknown thing, that will be what gets hooked into, um, which is why the, the Air Force in 1969 checks out. They're like, all right, like we can't win this battle. We're out, right? <laughs> like we're done doing UFO investigations. We're done doing independent projects. Um, we will investigate credible reports, but just as a normal process. The Navy is sort of hitting that stage right now where they're like, all right, like we've got a procedure, we'll do it and it'll be fine. And you can trust that we're investigating these things. Um, but at some point they're going to have to realize that they, like, you can't win, right? You cannot produce enough publicly accessible information. I think in both cases too, there's this parallel of, you know, the military is being told by various members of Congress who are for whatever, trying to score political points, you know, whether it's, you know, Gerald Ford or, uh, Marco Rubio now, but it's, you know, it's these politicians in Congress who are like, oh, we can use this to score. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's like, like today, it just seems like it's become such a big thing for a certain segment of a certain political party mainly. But uh, uh, yeah, it is this, this, and you get the sense that maybe the military just <laughs> does not like being told, but, and has symptoms of perhaps a broader problem where the military is not too happy with being told what to do by the government. But <laughs> I would I would agree with that. I do think, I mean, the cynical take is that interest from politicians is coming from a place that wants to create the impression that they're like standing up to these other powers in the government, right? Like, it's great for Marco Rubio to go out there and say, you know, I think that I think that there's something going on and I think that, you know, we need to know what it is. And, and I'm not saying it's aliens, right. Yeah, of to, to use the <laughs> meme, yeah. um, but that there's definitely something going on and we need to know what it is. And the Pentagon needs to be held accountable and we deserve reports or whatever. And like, yeah, okay, fine. That's true. However, um, I also think that like, we shouldn't be surprised 
um, that they're, well, you know, they, they know they're not Russian or we know they're not Chinese in, in 2021 or whatever nation we think they're coming from. And so like interest in them goes down. Like the Navy isn't NASA. Yeah. Study, right. Like, and so we, sh- like, we also have to ask ourselves like what we're expecting, like, and if our expectations are, are misaligned mm-hmm. with who's doing this work. You know, if one thing you're trying to do is show how relatively unweird the the Air Force's UFO investigations were within not only in you know treating this as a national security threat, but even just the partnering with universities and uh, uh, private scientists, you are also interested though in showing how they are kind of weird and that they present a sort of problem in knowledge production. Um, this problem of trying to figure out, well, you know, where do we get our data from? Um, who do we get our data from? Who are we going to consider a credible or less credible witness? You know, the problem of the, the most quote-unquote credible witnesses being often the least willing to report what they've seen. Um, I wonder if you could dig into that some, because it seems like that was really where your history of science training was at the, the forefront. Yeah. Um, AKA I'm obsessed with reporting forms. <laughs> that is my favorite part of this project, which depresses a lot of people because people are like, Oh, let me ask you about UFOs. And I'm like, no, let me tell you about these incredible forms and their punch cards. It's so neat. <laughs> um, yeah. So I am trying to unweird this a little bit. And I think the air force is desperately trying to unweird it throughout the history of mm. it. Um, it's also why I tend to bristle at these, at even today, sort of contemporary claims or suggestions that this preliminary assessment from June is somehow novel um, or represents a new level of transparency. It doesn't, right? The Air Force is trying at every stage from 1948 forward to be as transparent and put out as much information as they can to try to unweird it, talking about this in terms of a civil defense program, et cetera. Um, so, but yeah, there, there is a sort of weirdness to it in that um, for as interesting a scientific object as UFOs are, they are impossible to actually study in the way that we would think normal science happens. They are impossible to predict as a natural phenomenon. They are impossible to recreate. Um, they frequently defy capture on all kinds of different sensor technology. They're hard to get a good camera picture of they're hard to film on video they're they don't always show up on radar sometimes they show up on radar but there's nothing visual right they're very these really like literally transient objects um that can disappear at any moment and you know to sort of sarah skulls frequently i think she ends her book with something like this that what is more shocking than their appearance is their disappearance Mm-hmm. Um, that they are these sort of really brief experiences that are deeply subjective. Um, and so they already resist traditional scientific observation and intervention. On top of that, very rarely are these things even seen by scientists, which is not to say that scientists are less likely to, to see a UFO. We know that they're not demographically. Um, but rather that in many, many, many of these cases, you're relying on 
people who don't have the sort of training that scientists wish they did. And this even goes for Air Force pilots, right? Like Air Force pilots are, we trust to be reliable and to tell us as honestly as they can what they saw. But for example, the human, the human eye is a not great, like is not great at judging distance, right? Human perception fails at what for me was a shockingly small distance. And I can't remember off the top of my head how many meters it is, but it was shocking to me how, <laughs> how bad we actually are at like seeing beyond, you know, 10 feet or something. Um, and so you can't even, even from the most credible witnesses, you don't necessarily get reliable information if they're willing to report it all. So you then have to try to build, you're, you're facing all these problems as you try to build this infrastructure, this knowledge, this data gathering tool, massive infrastructure to try to capture the best data you can in an environment where every single thing is acting against you. And every single thing from the object you're trying to capture, from the vast amounts of distance over which it can take place, to the people who are participating in this, to the people who are funding this, right? At every stage, it is confounded by all of these really intractable problems. Um, and what I find attractive about that is that it, it helps us think about the conditions under which scientific knowledge gets made, right? Um, in a, in a project for 20 years, which is seen as a serious national security project, regardless of how well-funded or well-resourced it is, right? It's always sort of understood as a national security project. Um, how difficult it is to make scientific knowledge um, in a situation that seems like where people are making a real effort <laughs> to know <laughs> something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, they're confounding. I don't know if you have like more specific questions. Were you talking about like the difficulty of the human eye just to pick up the and I'll point out all three of us are wearing glasses yeah. too. So that's <laughs> but just one of the things that was really interesting to like one of the little details in your dissertation was when you're talking about how uh Heineck uh, uh basically like debunked Kenneth Arnold's and like on point by point basis. And that was just I mean, I, I knew some of like the issues with Kenneth Arnold, both like how it's reported, both how it's uh, promoted by uh, Ray Palmer and you know it's immediately latched on to by the science fiction magazine fandom which I think doesn't get promoted I think there's also some parallels there to how the history channel now is effectively like promoting all of, <laughs> and is really integrated into the UAP stuff but right from the start the flying saucer stuff is heavily integrated into you know the equivalent fandom of the time but also just like seeing Heineck just pointing out you know every single problem with Arnold's uh uh you know explanation it was just really interesting and it's interesting too how immediately you know like immediately after that Arnold is involved in investigating another UFO sighting and it's just like that's like it seems like that's just dismissed because even like people at the time are like this is ridiculous you know it's it's obviously a hoax and so it is just how the entire phenomenon or like what's taken as the starting point of it. And it is interesting how, you know, it's, it's Arnold that's taken as the start and not something like, you know, the Foo Fighter sightings or, you know, the Battle of uh, uh, Los Angeles or any of these, you know, military wartime stuff that could have been taken as the starting off point. But what everyone seems to agree is, you know, the starting point is something that even the military's own investigation is like, there's nothing behind this. It's, it's nonsense. But... <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and when, when J.L. and Hynek, the sort of the ufologist ufologist is 
critical of your story, it's not a good look, as yeah. the kids might say. Um, right. And I think, you know, even Heineck's lament that like the fact that Arnold is so involved in selling, right. That he's like mm-hmm. very clearly trying to make a buck off this, ex- this experience of his. Um, I, I think it both, it, it does like the, the professional scientists, ufologists, people like McDonald and, and Heineck, um, a service because it lets them say, we're actually interested in the science of this. And we know that Kenneth Arnold was one of the starting points of this, but we don't actually take him very seriously because of all of these conflicts in his report and the fact that he's like very clearly trying to monetize this thing. But also like it's problematic, right? That you're sort of like launch point for this entire thing, this entire cultural phenomenon um, is so easily debunked, taken apart. Now I will say, and I have said this everywhere I've gone so far, I I am not interested in being a debunker. I'm not a debunker. I think that people have experiences that they can't explain. And I think UFO witnesses overwhelmingly are acting in good faith and trying to accurately recount what their experience was. And I think that they did have that experience. I think that their experiences are true and real and valid for them. Um, and does, and those that they deserve our respect as people who had an experience <laughs> they can't explain. Um, so I'm not here to say that Heineck or excuse me, that Arnold's thing didn't happen. I wasn't there. I don't know. And the UFO people will love that. That's always their big claim, right? Mm -hmm. If you weren't there, you don't know. And I wasn't there and I don't know. But um, for Heineck to be critical, I think is is really like does a lot of damage to Arnold. Did you pretty much discover that thing that Heineck wrote about Arnold or had that had you seen that cited somewhere else? Because it seemed like you were digging into. Yeah. Yeah. So I I spent the overwhelming majority of my dissertation, like the time I spent doing it just in sources. Um, I actually wrote the like five of the seven ish chapters in like the last five and a half months or so. Um, Well, I like, I I just knew where like, at that point I had a story and I was also done with graduate school. Mm, So I just like, (laughs) I now know what I'm going to write about. I have all my sources. I have a really clear outline. I just have to fill in the blanks with sentences and punctuation. Um, (laughs) But in part, you know, I I was able to do that because I had spent so much time lost in the sources and I found that Heineck record, and I'm sure it's been cited elsewhere, um, but it's in the Project Blue Book files um, as Heineck goes through and, and does, he's working, J. Allen Heineck is not just involved in the UFO studies. He is a very active cold warrior, term of art in the discipline. Um, he's one of these scientists who is involved in multiple military projects during World War II and afterward. Um, and so he's, you know, he's doing a bunch of different stuff for the military. So like he's ready to go when they call him. He's also at Ohio State, which is like pretty close to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, mm-hmm. where a lot of this early investigation is taking place. So he's there. They give him a ring. He comes over to look at the files and he, he get that's how he gets involved in this. He's just this is yet another military program that he's contracting on. Um, And one of the things he does is go through all of these different case reports and try to solve them with what data that he has. And he does wind up writing, I think it's incident report number 17. I 
have it cited in the dissertation. I don't have the <laughs> dissertation in front of me. I that rings have. a bell. Um, which is his multi-page takedown of the Arnold sighting. And I just, I found it flipping through, you know, I read every Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book monthly status report, every final status report. I have read an overwhelming majority of the case files in the Blue Book archives. Um, yeah, and I just came across it and was like, oh, this is really good. Like, this is really useful because the Arnold story is so well known. It is one of these cornerstone stories. And here's one of our other big figures in the story, mm. you know, commenting on it. Um, but yeah, I just like everything else just happened on it in the archives. Had anyone, it seems like, I mean, there hasn't really been a whole lot of historical scholarship on UFOs in general. It's one of those topics that maybe more political science people have written about, but it doesn't seem like, um, I'm sure some, some hobbyists have, but just not many academics have actually gone through the blue book and grudge and sign case files. And they instead just kind of been relying on, there's two books, Edward Ruppel and David Jacobs. Could you speak a little bit about those two books and their kind of um, impact on the field and how you used or didn't use them? Or, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, they're, they're two really different works. So I think I'll say one about the one and then one about the other. I'll start yeah. with Ruppelt because it comes, I don't actually, I've never yeah. heard his name definitively pronounced. So I just keep calling him Edward Ruppelt. And when I'm wrong, someone will correct me. Um, he was a, an Air Force captain and uh, Ruppelt was the first director of Project Blue Book from 1952 to roughly 1954, 55-ish. I don't remember my exact date right now. Um, and he, he served in that post for a couple years and then he left and wrote this book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, um, which was an expose of those early years of Project Blue Book, those first years. Um, and it has become a sort of, almost immediately, it was published in 1956 and pretty much from the word go, it became one of these cornerstone foundational texts of 20th century ufology. Um, and, and for one of, one of the most, let me think, sorry, let me, you can edit all of my stuff out. Um, primarily because A, he's a credible witness, right? He was there. He was the guy who ran the project. So he has a lot of credibility as someone who speaks with authority and what was going on at Blue Book. Um, but also he becomes, the book takes off in that ufology, true believer, extraterrestrial hypothesis crowd, because Ruppelt claims that fairly early on in Blue Book, um, the investigators come to the conclusion that the only plausible explanation for UFO sightings is that they represent extraterrestrial technology, that Earth is being visited by extraterrestrials, and that these investigators, unnamed, come to this conclusion and then write a white paper titled The Estimate of the Situation for their higher-ups. And unnamed Air Force higher-ups read it. They are so disturbed that they order it summarily destroyed and all the copies of the white paper are literally taken out back and burned in a wastebasket, right? And like true conspiracy theory style. So you will even to today in some books about the subject, read about this white paper, this estimate of the situation that the Air Force destroyed. And it like, 
you know, it's been like 80 years now, and this is still sort of going on, this story about this white paper. I find Ruppelt to be a really interesting and also really problematic figure because, yes, like he was who he said he was. He did serve in this role in Project Blue Book. And many of his stories you can corroborate in the Air Force files, which I will always say and always point out are available publicly. <laughs> like the entire Blue Book archive is available online um, through the National Archives. Um, and you can corroborate a lot of his stories with backup documents that, let, that say, yeah, like, yeah, this probably happened or this certainly did happen. I actually have these documents in my hand that he's referring to. But there are other places, and this estimate of the situation is one of the biggest, where there is no other, there's like no evidence of this ever having happened, right? Um, and I find it hard to believe that a document like this could have been written and circulated and then entirely erased from history, except for the testimony of this one person. And I want to be clear that this is coming from me, who, who's like number one point is that like people who've had UFO experiences, those experiences are real, right? Like I wasn't there, I don't know. So I wanna be clear when I say that I don't think this existed. It means that I really, like there is nothing convincing me that it ever, ever, ever took place. So that calls into question, right? Like on one hand, he's a really credible witness and we can cite him as yet another source confirming that certain events took place. And in other cases, he is a totally unreliable witness. And in fact, there are other people, friends, colleagues of his that call his credibility into question, right? Who accused him of having left the project just to write this book because he knew it would sell and he was looking to make a quick buck, right? That he was, that he had this book, parts of this book drafted before he left the Air Force. Um, you know, and so like, what do you do with that? This is a long rambling answer about Edward <laughs> Ruppelt and I'm sorry, I don't know, yeah. right? And I, I've tried to be very upfront with that. And, and that's, that's a recurring theme when you study UFO seriously is that the same person can simultaneously be a really great reliable source and like really problematic in other ways. And, and what do you do with that? And my solution was just to say like, this is really, this is problematic. Like this is a problematic person to work with. Um, and I've tried to be clear, like when I am citing him as a, as a, like as a source who can be relied upon, I try to sort of supplement additional information, data, documents, et cetera, that will help bolster that. Um, and frequently I draw lines between him and Luis Elizondo. Um, <laughs> yes. It's similarity. Yeah. Um, when it comes to David Jacobs, David Jacobs is a historian. Um, he's at Drexel, the temple. Yeah, I was surprised he's still alive. I thought yeah. he was like, yeah. He runs and he now he runs a, a center that studies people who have had abduction experiences. Um, so he's always sort of been involved in this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so in 1975, or in the, I should say in the early seventies, late sixties, even, I don't remember the exact dates. He wants to write a history of the UFO studies. And actually he's in contact with people like Ed Condon and Don <laughs> Menzel and, and Heineck and is writing to them and is like, I wanna do this history. Like, will you work with me? And people like Don Menzel are like, this is a huge waste of your time. Like there's <laughs> nothing to write about. There's nothing here. 
Um, Kamban says the same thing, like, I'm sorry you've picked such a worthless topic to write your dissertation about. Um, we suggest you find something else, right? Um, but he forges ahead anyway, and he writes this dissertation and then book titled The UFO Controversy in America, published in 1975, which, um, you know, is, it's a great, I, mean, I, I will not lie, I, like I used it prolifically to find some of these, like the biggest basic sources, like what was everyone citing will go to Jacob, right? He will tell you in broad strokes, like what the most important texts were, um, where to find them in the archives, like specific dates of things. It's a great sort of introductory reader for the history of this thing. Um, however, he's writing it while a lot of this stuff is still happening. Right. He's like he's writing about Condon where he's beginning to study the Condon committee while it's still underway. Right. Like before he's read the final report. So just from a sort of methodological perspective, I find it really like really problematic um, mm. in the same way that like, you know, and it, it doesn't it's not always communicative to the reader that, you know, he writes X. And then something else has happened in 1974 that has totally undermined that in some way, right? Like it's not, it's just not a very sort of transparent piece of scholarship mm -hmm. because he's writing it very much in the moment. Were the blue book records available yet at that point for him to look at? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. So the Air Force was constantly on a sort of sometimes monthly, often annually, annual basis declassifying things on a sort of rolling basis. Like they would go back and review files or someone would request them. And it was like, oh yeah, we should just declassify this and make it available. Um, the problem was, is that they didn't have the internet. And so all of this stuff was winding up in Ohio. Some of it was in Missouri. It was all like sort of, it wasn't necessarily in a central location, especially in the sixties and seventies. Um, and so it was, it wasn't exactly easy to access. You had to write to the Air Force because some of it like was just declassified or wasn't entirely declassified and you needed clearance to get onto the base. And so it just wasn't super easy to access. Um, so while some of it was declassified, even if you, it was, you just, you maybe couldn't get to it really easily. And I don't know what his experience was um, finding some of this stuff. Um, but other stuff was like, you know, press releases and, and you could write to the Air Force and they would send you as much as they could. And, you know, so some of it was accessible. Um, so he writes this, he writes this book and it comes out and it's not, it's not terrible. I mean, it's, it's a good review of where they were at in 1975 with the caveat that he was writing some of this while it was still happening. He didn't have access to all of the data. He didn't have access to all of the people he wanted to have access to, right? Like Ed Condon was not a warm and fuzzy guy about UFOs, especially in his later years. Um, and so he was really limited on, on what sort of sources he had access to, even from the sort of scientific side. Um, and then that was it. <laughs> like that has been the text that everyone cites for 40 years now. Um, and it's not all correct. And it's not like, it doesn't have a sort of full picture. Um, some of the stories have been debunked. 
since some of the scientists have died and their papers have been donated to various archives, we've gotten sort of more insight into these relationships and the correspondence and, and et cetera, right? Like as happens in history. Um, the problem is, is that like, this, is, this has been the only book for 40 years, broadly speaking. And so that's the source that people go to, right? Sociologists writing in the, in the 2000s are citing Jacobs, Jacobs' history for context, um, which casts a certain light over the whole thing. Um, and so one of the things I set out to do was, was acknowledge the importance of Jacobs at the time, but to say that like, this is a really outdated text and if nothing else, for people in psychology and sociology and, and all of these other fields that are interested in this, like I will give you a better history <laughs> uh, than this one is. It would be like if the last like historical book on the Vietnam War was published in 1975. There's probably been some new records of pop have shown up since then. And right, like it's, I think it's interesting because we have this like evidence of him saying, like going to all of these scientists and being like, will you please share your papers with me? And I want to write about this. And will you, will you help me come to Colorado to like study the project as it's taking place? And the scientists are like, no, <laughs> we won't do that for you. We're not interested in helping you sort of do this and perpetuate this story, especially because Jacobs is like pretty upfront about the fact that like, at least my, my interpretation of the correspondence is that he is skeptical, like he's skeptical. He's maybe not necessarily a true believer, but he's not Donald Menzel, like the debunker right? Capital T, capital D. And, and so there's like, also, you can read some hesitancy, not only because people like Condon and Menzel are super frustrated with the fact that they're still doing this all these years later, but also with the fact that this guy is trying to get into their communities and their networks, and he see, they're worried that he's going to try to undermine them, which ultimately, in some ways, he winds up doing. Um, well, I wonder if there's a there's a bit of suspicion there too. You know, he's a historian, a social science. So you have this guy who's you know not from the quote real sciences all of a sudden coming in too, and it made me think of that's because I I first became aware of Jacobs from his you know much later work on alien abductions and all. But it's funny because you know a year or two ago actually I looked up his dissertation and I read it and abductions are not there. It's, you know, it's, it's all about the actual craft and the sighting. So it's, it's, I think I, that shows something too of how the transition goes. And you, you point this out in your dissertation too, it goes around the time he publishes his work from the point of view of a, uh, you know, more interest in the craft to more interest in, you know, who's driving the craft and why are they probing us and cutting up cows and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, and that, I, that kind of is a segue to, to another figure I was interested in from your dissertation, uh, uh, Carl Sagan and uh, the, the saga of Sagan as he takes. Because it's interesting because I've always, like when you hear Sagan mentioned like in regards to UFOs now, I think he is always depicted as like the hardcore skeptic debunker type. And I think that that really comes across like in how he goes after like uh abductees in the Hill case and you know, he has his uh, confrontations with Stanton Friedman. And, but it's interesting where he's very, you know, obviously like, uh, like if you watch Cosmos Sagan's take on the Hills, you know, like they're almost depicting these like bumbling, like rural idiot type people. But if you look at how he's looking at UFOs in general, and actually I'm also like, I think I mentioned I'm interested in 
the history of ancient alien stuff and Sagan's views on ancient aliens is a lot more nuanced than, I mean, he's writing about ancient aliens before Eric von Daniken is too. So there is this interesting route of, you know, how abductees versus UFOs and how they're related and how you can be a skeptic of one, but a proponent of the, and how I feel like today it's a lot more meshed together. And you can see how people like Elizondo are kind of trying to thread this. Uh, And it comes across too that, Sagan himself, I mean, is in a different way, a product of Cold War science, uh, uh, in some cases, a critique of aspects of the Cold War military industrial complex, but also a beneficiary of, you know, NASA and JPL and Cornell. So it's it's showing how a different route of uh, Cold War, the military industrial academic complex uh, is producing a somewhat different take. uh, Although, again, I guess Sagan himself is a he's one of those hard scientists, not like Jacobs, who's on the or later on, John Mack, too. Yeah. Yeah. John Mack. Um, Just two quick thoughts on that. The first is that I don't I would sort of push back and say I don't know necessarily that it's because Jacobs is a historian. The in the late 60s, Condon and his colleagues are, are pretty open, at least in their correspondence with each other, that while there is nothing physical, like the physical sciences aren't going to get anything out of UFOs. It's really interesting for the social sciences, social Mm. scientists. And in fact, one of the reasons why they agree to do this project is because of the interest in the social science piece. And, you know, all the money is going to the physicists. The social sciences (laughs) deserve some, and we should do this project so that they can do some work, right? Like we'll Mm. do them a solid and do this whole thing. I think it's more that He's a graduate student. Yeah. <laughs> like doesn't have any name recognition mm-hmm. and writes these really long letters. Like his his <laughs> his letters asking for things from these scientists are like really long relative to other kinds of correspondence. Um and he's like he's very open about what he wants to do and what his interests are and and that he is interested in X, Y, and Z. Um, and the responses he gets back are very clipped, very short. Um I think sound kind of fatigued, um, for, you know, and, and Jacobs is sort of the, uh, the unwitting whipping boy at some point for these people. Like he just makes the mistake of writing them and asking them for something when they're totally burnt out. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he's an easy target mm-hmm. because he's a graduate student with no name recognition. Right. Yep. There, there is a, there is a bit of punching down going <laughs> on there. Um, as for, for Sagan and, your comment about the abductions and UFOs and the sort of sea change that takes place. One of the things that's so interesting about this um, is that there are these hierarchies inside of ufology. Um, If we consider ufology, the study of UFOs, right? I will say the ufologists, Mm -hmm. especially in the fifties and sixties, like really dislike the abduction people. Like they are really, critical of people who claim to have been abducted because everyone knows that's ridiculous. Yep. (laughs) Um, Aliens aren't abducting people and we should just ignore those people, right? Like those people are making us, the serious scientists investigating UFO phenomena, (laughs) look bad. Like, and they're always trying to distance themselves from people like the Hills, right? The Mm -hmm. Betty and Barney Hill who claimed to have been abducted in the 1950s. They're like, we don't know, we have nothing to do with them. They are crackpots who are trying to convert, like capitalize on legitimate scientific interest. Um, and that continues to be the case. 
with other kinds of, right? Like, I think we can see this, we can track these kinds of hierarchies through flying saucers to UFOs, mm-hmm. UAP. Yeah. Right? As, <laughs> as the categories become increasingly empty of meaningful content, they somehow also become more credible and more legitimate. Um, and so you do see these sorts of siloed interest groups, if you will. And so this is interesting when it comes to Sagan, because, you know, he's Carl Sagan. Um, he is like in the 70s, sort of like intimately involved for a brief window of time in this UFO thing. He does this AAAS um, symposium that turns out a book, The UFO Controversy. I think it's called, it's, I can see it over there on the shelf, but I can't <laughs> read the title because human yeah. perception is bad. Exactly. Um, <laughs> If it was traveling at 400 miles an hour, maybe you could make out the then title. I would know, then. then I would know that it's like a flying saucer from somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah um, he, he puts out this book. And it's really interesting because all along the way, like he's becoming a more visible public figure. He's not like Carl Sagan, Cosmos Carl Sagan yet, but he's mm-hmm. doing some, some media about it. He's on the television talking about it. And, and people like Donald Menzel, right? Again, the debunker. Cold War scientist, true cool cold warrior, who's been working with the Air Force since the beginning to try to debunk these things, is writing to Sagan, like, what are you doing? You are destroying your career. You're undermining science. You claim to be the science popularizer, but you're filling people's heads with nonsense, right? Like, this could have been a really excellent opportunity to do public science communication and teach people things about astronomy and atmospheric physics. And instead, you're like entertaining delusions. Like, please stop. Um, but he doesn't, right? Like the symposium goes forward. He puts his book out. He's like doing this, this work. Um, and like every, the, all of the correspondence is like, what is Carl doing? Like, why is he doing, what have we done to deserve this? Right? <laughs> um, and, and yeah, like the Carl Sagan is trying to fill this sort of middle ground um, where he's not like, he's not a true believer, but also, right? Like he's not, He's not debunking. Right. The business of debunking. Um, There's a totally different podcast about Carl Sagan and his, (laughs) like, he's a, he's a true artist when it comes to doing this kind of work. He's really media savvy. And I say that again, without judgment, like he's really good at his job. um, And he really frustrates his colleagues. on this. (laughs) I I was surprised um, by J. Allen Hynek's trajectory that you traced here. I, because I guess the narrative, having not read his, you know, um, oh, what's his big book? The UFO, what's the one that in 72? Oh my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, they all have similar sounding names. It's so exactly. the UFO experience, the UFO. The, the UFO experience. Yes. Okay. That so might that's be it. it. The one where he lays out the encounter types. Yes. Which I definitely, probably at some point when I first watched Close Encounters, I think my older brother explained to me what the, the, the kinds of encounters were to me as if, as, and, and it was sort of as if this was just like high school science basic stuff, like this was accepted. And it was a long time before I realized that it was just something that Heineken had cooked up. But I'd gotten the impression of the, this sort of story that I think is a story that Heineck retroactively constructs that he comes into Project Blue Book as a skeptic and then, you know, becomes less skeptical or more open and is finds himself pushing against, you know, the Air Force uh, or, you know, and he ends up having to break away and tell the story himself. 
Um, but it seems like he was really on good terms with Air Force for a lot longer than I had gotten the impression of. Yeah, I think so. Um, Heineck has a, a long and productive relationship with the U.S. military and specifically with the U.S. Air Force. As I said, he's he's consulting with them on multiple projects. He's involved with multiple early Cold War scientific, like military, industrial, scientific, academic, whatever projects. Um, and... And he's involved with Project Blue Book until the bitter end, just because he's not on the Condon Committee. Like he's not at Colorado working with them. Um, he's still working for the Air Force with Blue Book. You know, he he is involved in contracting with them forever and for as long as the projects run from sign grudge through the end. Um, and yeah, he starts out as a debunker. I would never say, you know, I think he gets kind of a, and I was also guilty of doing this to him. I think that he sometimes gets a little bit of a, a rough shake. Um, when you read his reports, like, and it's a ton of work and, you know, like there's so much, there's so much paper, there's so much paper around this thing. Um, Get, getting back to the Jacobs thing, I understand why perhaps there hasn't been another sort of serious effort. The only reason I was able to do this project to the level of detail that I was, was because I had years of no other responsibilities to work on it. Um, so I think Heineck gets a little bit of a rough shake. I think that, I mean, even in 1965, he gets himself in super hot water because he goes to Michigan and says, you people weren't seeing UFOs, you were seeing the swamp gas. And that's how we get the Condon Committee because Heineck shows up in Michigan and is like, actually, this wasn't a UFO. Like, here's all of these other circumstances that potentially created this thing that you saw. And that's in 65, right? Like, he's still doing that important debunking work, even if he's become slightly more generous to or flexible with other kinds of interpretations. Right. At the end of the day, he's still an employee of the Air Force who's being paid to accomplish a certain task, which is solve as many of these as he possibly can with plausible explanations for the purpose of national security. I, I know that he is, he is beginning to entertain the ETH, extraterrestrial hypothesis, true believers, especially in the late 1960s. And he is making comments in the media that he is becoming more sympathetic toward these people. And that creates concern among his colleagues, people like Menzel, Don Menzel. Who is it like he and Heineck are like very close friends through the 1950s and into the 1960s. And like, even though their, their correspondence is so beautiful, it's the two of them being like, we will never agree on this, but like, you're still my good friend and here's a Christmas card. And like, let's get the wives together when I'm in Northwestern, right? Like it's, they somehow find a way through a substantial part of this history to like maintain a friendship. Um, but there's a lot of concern that Heineck is becoming sympathetic to these people. He, but that's not the reason he's not on the Condon committee. He doesn't, he wants to be on the Condon committee in the late sixties. Um, but the air force doesn't want him there. And the scientists don't want him there because he has too much background knowledge. Like he's too familiar with the study mm -hmm. to be an objective observer, which I think is, true. I, th I yeah. think that's like factually, functionally true. Um, he doesn't really make the switch until the seventies. And that's when, like when project blue book is closed, he's not really doing any work with the air force anymore. Right. Like, and, and not because of the UFO thing, but because 
the conditions of the world have changed, right? Like physics funding from the government, science funding from the government collapses in 69, right? Like it, it, it is totally curtailed. Um, and like, they're just not, like his contracts run out and now he's free, like he's a free agent. And he's, you know, in sort of towards the end of his tenure, he's going into the final stage of his career at Northwestern. He's tenure, he's got nothing to lose. And he's like a savage, he is savage, sorry, savvy media figure. Um, And I think that he's genuinely interested. And, you know, so he's sort of like, I'm gonna keep working on this. And here's the strangeness quotient and here's the type of encounters. And, you know, here's some books and I'm gonna be on TV and I'm gonna start the center at Northwestern. And Northwestern's like, no, you're not. (laughs) Oh, I love that part where he's he's like, they're starting to get alarmed that he's referring to it as yes. his Northwestern center. And they're like, and they're like no. you can't do this. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm sorry, you're ashamed of it. And they're like, we're not ashamed of it. We're not, we're just not paying for it. Like this makes us liable for all kinds of like, all kinds of things. Um, I think Heineck doesn't really make that shift until the seventies. And even then, like, he is much more like his explanations are so much stranger than, than some others. James <laughs> McDonald's like, yeah, it's totally aliens. Heineck is like, this is, these are illusions from parallel universes that we're seeing. And you're, you're just like, okay, cool. <laughs> so he's more the Jacques Vallée. Yeah. Sort of. Although Vallée like checks out for a while too. Like, you know, I think he's kind of come back to the fold later in life, but there's a time when he, he goes back to France and Heineck is writing him and is like, Hey, I need your help. And he's like, I am not like this alien stuff is bonkers. <laughs> this is my paraphrase. Right. But like Valet is like, I'm not like you're doing you and I'm over here. And I, like, he's actively trying to remove himself from what is rapidly spinning up into kind of a scientific circus. The, um, oh, I did want to ask you, so this dissertation was, you finished it in 2019, or at least that's like, you defended it. And December 2017 is when you had the big landmark New York Times story that kind of, I think, started this latest UFO. I don't know if you can call it a flat, well, I guess, well, uh, uh, because it's not been a wave of sightings per se. It's just been a wave of promotion yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's like a suit publicity yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this means that this happened surely you were already well into this yeah so i'm curious what that december was like for you i don't that's a great question on one hand it was i was just finishing up and then this happened and i thought well cool here's my introduction mm-hmm. um, now i really can like finish the dissertation um y- yeah it was it was strange I think what was so strange for me was, and this goes back to your comment about how I'm, I seem to be trying to take a lot of the weirdness out of this. Uh, what was strange for me is how little has changed. Historians tend to tell change over time stories. That's the easiest kind of story for us to tell. This UFO thing is a story of not change over time. Um, you could take quotes from Elizondo and Ed Repelt and switch them, and it would be very hard to tell. They're making the same arguments about like that these things are happening, credible witnesses are making reports. And it's not that the higher ups are attempting a cover up, it's that they aren't giving us the resources we need. So um, June 25th, 2021, please give us more personnel and money, which is what Repelt is saying. And 
1956, like the Air Force isn't giving us enough money and resources. They just aren't interested. It's not like maliciousness, it's incompetence. Um, the fact that we have these pilots as our witnesses, we're not talking about people like you and me, right? Or a random person down the street. We're talking about pilots who have experiences while they're operating military aircraft. That, that carries a different kind of status with it. That's the case in 48, 47, or 48, 49, 50, 64, whatever. And it's the case in 2004 and, and 2014. Um, this preliminary assessment that we just got two weeks ago is like essentially identical to the project sign final report from 1948 and its conclusions and its explanations of where, like what people are actually seeing and what it needs. My, I mean, since then I had, I started do, tweeting, but then I had to go record a different thing about like <laughs> them just talking constantly about how they need more money to build a better standardized, formalized reporting process. Like we don't have a really great reporting process. So obviously the data we're getting is subpar. Let us make more reporting forms. And like, it, it's, it's all the same. It's all the same. And if there's something truly weird about this, it's that it's all the same. It's that nothing has changed in 70, 80 years. Um, and I, I mean, that's wild. It's totally wild to me. It's why I love it so much. Because the world has changed. Mm-hmm. But maybe right. it actually hasn't changed that much. I don't know. Well, instead of communism now, it's critical race theory. Oh, so it's... Yeah. <laughs> Watch out if the law schools get uh, unmanned drones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Actually, I, I have a... Uh, maybe a bit of a more lighthearted question, but have you seen the History Channel show Project Blue Book? I have not. Um, That and Mea Culpa, it came out (laughs) and I emailed, or I was was in the middle of some correspondence with Greg Agigian, a colleague of mine at at Penn State who you may be familiar familiar with. He's got a book coming out later this year um, that is an international history of the UFO phenomenon and abduction oh, experiences, I think. Um, it is a super ambitious project. Uh, yeah. He and I actually met, we've been talking to each other, but we met by coincidence at the James McDonald, James E. McDonald archives in, in Arizona. Just, hmm. we happened to be there at the same week. Um, yeah, he and I were talking and the show had come out and I said something, he asked if I'd seen it and I said, no, how is it? And he was like, don't watch it it's very it's like yeah i don't know what the it'll make you so mad and you'll go crazy like just please (laughs) i was like okay it's just the weirdest thing there's a subplot about a hynex wife getting seduced by a lesbian kgb agent and it's it's (laughs) watching that i was just like how did they get like yeah i was just it's, it's very strange. It only and, made and, me we're still around. So like, exactly, tell us what I was really like, it, it made me wonder, like, what would they? Th- like, <laughs> thing is, is that I think, and I know I'm not, I'm, I know I'm biased in this sense. I think the story is really interesting and, yeah. and like has a lot of depth and nuance. One of my favorite stories is about that, like 1947, 1948 period, where no one knows what's going on. Um, and no one anywhere really knows what's going on. And the concern is that these are Soviet, right? And, and so I wrote about it briefly, um, I think in, one, in the first like actual chapter, but I fell down a rabbit hole with it, was these sort of battles that are taking place between the Soviet Union and the US. The Soviets are accusing the US of 
like totally concocting this UFO thing, whole cloth as pretext to go to war, right? Like you've made up these things and then you've blamed us for them so that you can start a war with us. And the U.S. is saying, you're flying these things over us to get us to attack you so that we'll go to war with you, right? Like these are, under- <laughs> these are openly understood um, as, as potential places, right? Like of, of these, these two nations trying to start a fight with each other. Um, and throughout the status reports, um, it's especially in the early, early years, right? The, these reports are being forwarded to the Department of Psychological Warfare. Um, because it's understood that like, even if these things aren't necessarily real, like we have seen in the last six months, I mean, in 1947, like how powerful they are in the popular imagination. And I find, you know, I find the Cold War piece of this like really, really interesting. Um, I was looking through like just like newspapers.com, just looking at the flying saucer stories from the 47 and kind of zooming out to look at the full page, especially if it was on the front page. And it is just striking that these flying star stories are juxtaposed. They're right below or right next to stories about, you know, the, the Soviets are mad that we're letting this country into NATO and stuff like that. Like it is definitely being framed as a Cold War story, just even the way it's being laid out in news, newspaper front pages. Yeah, and I think that's really... I maybe I'll do a conference talk about it one day about the photos that get chosen, the mm. way they're centered on the pages. You know, journalists have been asking, you know, it seems interesting now, like now UFOs are front page news. And I was like, they've been front page news repeatedly <laughs> in the past, like 1952 and the repeated sightings over DC are a mm-hmm. huge deal. Yeah. Huge deal. Um, the military is like freaking out about 1952. And again, perhaps rightly so, right? Like I, I think that interest in this is sustained interest is legitimate. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, you see like next to, even in 47, we're talking like Truman Doctrine, mm-hmm. it's just a couple months prior, his speech laying out, you know, and, and Greece and, and all of this stuff. Um, what, was, what was so surprising to me from a sort of historiographical perspective was that everyone who was working on this seems to agree that it was a cold war story, <laughs> but no one had ever done the work of articulating how and why. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what part of what I set out to do was, and if that's, you know, like, yes, it's sort of taking some of the weirdness out. Um, but I think that the weirdness, like the sort of evaporating weirdness part of it is because I think it is so obviously and so clearly a cold war story. Um, that just like not even not even subtly and and it felt really nice to be able to lay that out and to say like here's why the air force gets involved here's how they like explicitly understand these things they spent all of this all of these resources with these scientists trying to figure out how propulsion systems work and you know the plausibility of like a pilot being inside and and if we could recreate it if it was russian or navy um you know, and, and that the Russians are freaked out about it and that, you know, these things are, they're being seen everywhere, but they're not necessarily extraterrestrial, right? Like Germany thinks they're American, Swedes Mm -hmm. think they're Russian, right? Like it's so in these early, early days, so clearly framed, even by someone like Arnold, right? As, as a cold war story. 
you mentioned something that hadn't occurred to me, which was that in 47, still, we, we knew so little, really, about what was going on inside the Soviet Union. Like, this is before our spy planes, our espionage was pretty scarce. Like, we really didn't know what they had. I mean, yeah, we knew that we had been able to build an atomic bomb in, in relative secrecy. So who knows what they're able to build in relative secrecy in this vast nation. We can't forget that they didn't have the surveillance and espionage technology then that they would even have in the 60s. Right. And this is this is a sort of key part of these early UFO years, too, is that a lot of what pilots are seeing are like these new skyhook balloons, these surveillance mm-hmm. balloons, Project Mogul, right? Like that in addition to all of this test aircraft, these other bodies are also developing new kinds of surveillance technologies and testing them. And there's not a ton of communication happening (laughs) between all these disparate groups. And the Air Force is aware of that, right? Like the Air Force is aware that they have secret projects that nobody else knows about. So obviously other groups have secret projects too. And they're very, they like, they talk about this a lot in the status reports. Like this might be X, Y, or Z from these different groups. Most of the sightings in 1953 are the U-2 spy plane. And the CIA (laughs) knows it. The CIA is involved with the U.S. like, at the time, right, it's just like, they're like, oh, we're concerned that they're Russian or whatever, so we're going to get involved in this UFO project. But in retrospect, and they, they were open about this in the 90s, in retrospect, they're involved because they know they're putting aircraft up there that people are going to be seeing and reporting. And so they get involved with the, the Air Force and with Project Blue Book to sort of monitor the sighting reports that are coming in. And they do later take responsibility for the vast majority of sightings in 1953, that it is the spy plane. Um, There's always the concern that they're Soviet. In 1948, they have this big long, I didn't really get to spend a ton of time on it in the dissertation um, because I don't know how how super relevant it was, but there is frequently, I mean, there's like these subtle digs at the Soviet Union that (laughs) we're concerned that they're Soviet, but like, let's be honest, we're, <laughs> we're the leading superpower in the world. We have the most advanced science and technology and anything the Soviets have, they've stolen, right? Like the overwhelming majority of their progress has come on the backs of others, be it us or the Nazis or whomever, right? But like- We got are, the better Nazis, really. And yeah. we, <laughs> yes, and we got the better Nazis. Like, and that's not like tongue in cheek, right? Like, like they are sending, the Air Force is sending early UFO reports to some of these Nazi rocket scientists to ask them like, is this yours? <laughs> like, did you build this? And do the Soviets have it now? Um, so the Air Force is like, all right, like we get, they might be Soviet. We're very scared of that. But like, let's be honest, it seems totally implausible given the sort of expertise, manpower, and money you would need to get something like this literally off the ground in a couple of years is beyond the Soviet Union's capacity. And so that's the calculus that makes them determine that they're not Soviet, is that it seems totally unreasonable that the Soviets could have accomplished this in secret with brand new technology that nobody else has, right? Because all of the progress of the Soviet Union has come from others. And so that's why it's sort of immediately like not a national security threat. I also think that that lack of transparency, which you absolutely are correct to point out, is what is driving some of the current anxiety. That China's kind of a black box for us That's exactly what I was going to say. Like (laughs) China's the new black box. Um, And we know, but the difference is now that we know that it it is likely that they at least match us in capability. And we don't actually know what their capabilities truly are. 
so yeah, I think we've kind of come full circle. Maybe the, maybe you were citing the 1948 source because you mentioned at some point where they they're saying, well, if it is Soviet, then I mean, why would it just be hanging out in airspace in Washington State? Which is the same question now: is if they are Chinese made, why are they just sort of darting around off the coast of San Diego? <laughs> well, the reply is that you know they're they're just test aircraft, and we're testing to see if they're at like at what point they're perceivable or how the U.S. reacts to them, right? There is a sort of camp that comes back and says, it's a, they're testing us or they're trying to goad us, right? Like there are, there are people who offer explanations because yeah, like why? If you have this incredible piece of technology, why, why show it off? Or maybe the technology is such to where it's, they're still figuring out how to control it and maybe they don't even necessarily intend for it to enter American airspace, but when it, when it go, <laughs> enters some portal and comes out and like, oh crap, we sent yeah, it to San I mean, Diego. Yeah, like, we're, we're, be, we're sort of like being jocular about it, but yes, that's exactly the conversations that are happening. So I will be really interested um, to see what this story looks like from the Russian perspective. It, from my sense and by the, from the accounts of scientists, like contemporary scientists, um, there was not a big interest in Russia. It seems to really ramp up in the late 60s and into the 70s that you start seeing the UFO phenomena being reported on and talked about, et cetera. Of course, like we all know how impenetrable Soviet archives can be. So of course that picture can always change. Um, in the same way that I know that there are still classified documents that like I have not seen for like the million pages. <laughs> and I, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say a million pages at this mm -hmm. point, the million pages I've turned just about on this. Um, I know for sure. I, I can tell you what they are. There are just black holes in the record um, in the same way that I'm sure over in Russia, like there are boxes of documents about this that that no one has seen. Well, I was going to ask, I know that really this story didn't really become part of the imagination until uh, I think 1980, Roswell. But I was curious if any of that popped up. Or... I think Roswell was always so fascinating to me because it was nothing. I mean, it, like it happened. Mm -hmm. It was like in some newspapers for a day or two. But like the Kenneth Arnold story was still big. And like there were still all of these copycat Arnold stories happening. Um, and then it just disappeared. In part because the Air Force like didn't you know like it was a classified balloon project like we we don't want to talk about it we're not going to spend a ton of time on this we're not really gonna we'll answer questions but in the most boring way we possibly can <laughs> we'll just like smoosh interest um and then it disappeared like nobody cares about roswell i think even the file like the case file in the blue book archives is like tiny right it's like this thing happened Ooh. <laughs> I'm All kind right. of surprised you even had a file in Project Blue Book. I it thought for sure. Yeah. yeah, like it's not, it's because it's not, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. a UFO. And yeah. it's not, like nobody even sees it in flight. Like you find debris in a field. Um, and then in the 1980s, it gets sort of rediscovered and like spun up into this totally wild mm -hmm. mythology. Um about by the same people who like were really big into promoting uh the bermuda triangle yeah. and Atlanta. so it's it, it shows how it like it's like yeah. the merging of this the wider like uh like the the kind of stuff you would see on in search of basically just yeah, becomes it's the super it's super even in the like the sort of i would say early 
the early transitionary period sort of at the, like we're talking 1977-ish, Close Encounters of the Third Kind happening simultaneously with some of these first documentaries that are talking about like cow mutilation and alien abduction and crystal skulls and stuff. Um, <laughs> that's all sort of happening in the same kind of, in this within the same year or two of each other. Um, and the Shatner narrated uh, Ancient Aliens documentary. That's yes. yeah. around the yeah. same time, right? At the same time that Nimoy is doing his own stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, so there, so there is a really interesting side piece about the two of them and their sort of competing oh, wow. alien <laughs> documentaries that are taking place. Um, and what process, because Star Trek, the motion picture is 79. Oh my God, I forgot about yep. that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the whole story there is about the Voyager probe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Carl see, Sagan. so like I, I do admit that I sort of like drop <laughs> off at like a really interesting turning point, but there is a sort of turning point where the stuff is getting weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's lamentable. I mean, even people like Heineck are like Heineck and these other ufologists that are really interested in the phenomenon are like, oh man, like, come on. <laughs> like I don't I don't think that UFOs are mutilating cows, right? <laughs> like I please help. Um but yeah, it's just like in this sort of weird nexus of of all of this other strange stuff happening. Um, but even then, I would say in like the late seventies, it's not really like yeah, I don't. It's just it's not Roswell is not relevant for the same reason that the hills are not relevant, but not even the same reason. Like Roswell just doesn't strike anyone as being like we know what it is, so like it's not it's not mysterious. Like we accidentally mm-hmm. crashed a balloon. I guess is the one thing they like, so is it, cause I don't, I don't remember the details, but there is some military figure who calls it a saucer at some point, right? And then they walk that back, is that, or? Well, so the, the version that I have heard through, recounted through science, there's many different versions of the story because there's no one like definitive account is that a skyhook balloon comes down, surveillance balloon of some kind, project, a project mogul balloon. And a, and a farmer finds it and like calls his local air force base and is like, I have one of your, one of your things out. Like I've got something out here that probably belongs to you. And so a kid comes out to get it and says out loud, oh yeah, this is a balloon. And then his, like his bosses find out. And of course this project is like intensely classified because we're, we're actually testing surveillance balloons for the Soviet Union. And mm-hmm. we don't want the Russians to know that we're doing this. So then the higher ups are like, oh, we don't know what it is, but it's definitely not a balloon. It might be a flying saucer. It might be, it might be a piece of an airplane. It might be anything. It might be a hoax, mm-hmm. but it's definitely, definitely not a balloon. Um, <laughs> and that's where, I mean, that's where that sort of like that story sort of comes from, right? That the right. Air Force says that it's not a weather balloon. Well, of course, it's not a weather balloon, first of all. Um, and second of all, like it's a super classified <laughs> surveillance mm-hmm. balloon for the, and I think this is the same for like Area 51, right? <laughs> We've all heard tell that like actually that's where they're developing all of these unmanned drone technologies and new test craft and stuff like that. And so when you, when you, now we're all much more familiar with drones and what drones look like and how they move and operate. When you go back and read some of these Area 51 flying saucer reports from 10 or 15 years ago, suddenly you can, you can read a drone into that, right? Mm-hmm. The spinning lights and the fact that it just sort of hovers and that it zips around and does all these weird maneuvers and goes up and down. It sounds very much like a drone. And this sounds real. this is perhaps a cynical take uh, but, you know, it's plausible that 
the United States government is not super interested in dismantling the Area 51 story because, you know, like how inclined are we really to believe that, you know, people are actually seeing things out there if they're saying, I saw a flying saucer. So we don't take it seriously. And then all of a sudden there are drones and we're like, oh, I see, right? Yes, okay. Um, we trust the pilots to, you know, identify, you know, oh, like a flying saucer, but somehow they always keep, you know, bombing weddings instead of... Uh... Yeah, you know, and and as, I mean, the, even the Ferris assessment, this preliminary assessment, right? Like they are discussing, the authors are discussing the fact that, sure, a lot of these sightings have multiple sensor returns, um, but, quote, the sensors mounted on U.S. military platforms are typically designed to fulfill specific missions. As a result, these sensors are not generally suited for identifying UAP. <laughs> and even when they tried to build sensors to identify UAP, it turns out that, like, it's really hard to take a picture of something from a jet plane. Yeah. Right? Like, when, when it's attached to the wing and you're not in control of where it's pointing. And you know, there are these, like, very real practical problems that, are, that make it impossible to sort of capture and study this thing and i think that is what makes it that's what gives itself its longevity is that we can't we will never be able to definitively say we'll never be able to definitively identify every unidentified flying object or unidentified aerial phenomenon and as long as there's one right then the question is always open in the same way for the air force that as long as there is a sliver of a chance that an that a ufo is an icbm <laughs> we have to continue investigating and so as long as there's even a sliver of a chance that one of these is something else, then we will always be interested.